Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cudaback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, household and family life, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third-order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. Dr. Cudaback also writes for his blog titled Bacon from Acorns, where he provides a weekly Wednesday quote and reflection on some aspect of the good life. Dr. Cudaback, an avid gardener and hunter, is happy to make a household with his wife and children in the Shenandoah Valley. He's a frequent speaker for the ICC, as well as one of our Magdalene Apostolate professors. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. Cudaback. Thank you very much, Andy. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening and an honor. I have two things that I'm going to invite you to imagine. The first is a four-month-old baby. This little boy, I am told, looks a bit like me. Um, I want you to picture him being held by his father as he's zooming through the pool water, hovering above the water as though he were a speedboat and his eyes wide with amazement. Here's a second thing for you to imagine. A young man who looks like he has uh, been doing a lot of work, he's dirty, uh, he's tired, and he's been traveling, uh, so generally disheveled. And he arrives, he doesn't arrive yet, he's, he's on his way towards a very nice home that's up on the hill. And you can tell that he's running a drill in his mind as to what he's going to say when he gets there. This is very clear. He's getting closer and closer, and if you look closely, you can see the concern in his eyes. And now, an older man appears in the picture, and he's running as his robes flap in the wind. And he comes to that boy, and he surrounds him with a hug. It's as though he doesn't even hear the words that are being said. You see him turning around. He's calling to people. When he calls, they move. The next thing you know, this young man has a ring on his finger. And a celebration is underway. First of all, isn't it amazing 
to be able to commune together by imagining. It's, it's an astounding power. One of the things that I invited you to imagine actually happened about four hours ago. And the other, I'm not sure it ever happened exactly like that, but nonetheless, what we imagined, I think is more real than perhaps anything we've ever seen. Imagination is at the center in many, in many ways of human life. There is a monster under our bed. It's the monster that's in our imagination. Because in a sense, if in your imagination there is a monster under your bed, then there is a monster under your bed. How we imagine the world is in many ways how the world is for us. Have you ever tried to tell a child that there's not a monster under the bed? You might as well save your breath as regards trying to convince the child that it's not there. The approach might be to take a different angle. I think the child can be consoled, but it's probably not going to be by trying to convince him that the monster is not there. But ladies and gentlemen, the real monster that's under our bed is perhaps our malformed imaginations in this day and age. That is a monster very close at hand. It is a very serious problem. And to some extent, we all have this problem. It's very, very difficult to be able to understand, to be able to imagine. And as we'll talk a little bit about, those two things are very closely tied. It's very hard to imagine what our imagination is like versus what it perhaps could be or should be. We're gonna do a little bit of an exercise in that here tonight. And in any case, I hope that we leave with some ideas about how we might go in a direction of improving our imaginations. I don't wanna spend a long time trying to convince you just how much better our imaginations could be than they are, though I am gonna spend a little time doing that. And then I'm gonna to turn to give some thoughts on what we might do, because the great news is working on our imagination is right there before us. It's something that we can do, in a sense, with a snap of the finger. We can set certain goals, we can start to do certain practices, and our imagination will start to change. No matter what has gone before, it's a rather amazing thing, ladies and gentlemen, imagination is made to work. It's, it's, it's made to do its job of holding on to things. And so that can cut both ways. It's very beautiful how it does so that it can serve the purpose that it has. At the same time, when it gets things in it, 
that shouldn't have been there, it's very difficult. They can't simply be expunged. We can't press a button and make them go away. But we can still do something. Here's the plan. I'm going to, first of all, talk a little bit about human nature. We want to remind ourselves, always go back to the fundamental principle of what it means to be human. Because, ladies and gentlemen, were we angels, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So we need to remind ourselves about what it means to be human. Then I want to say a few things about the imagination. It's going to be short. A couple words on its nature, its importance, and how it gets formed, whether we know it or not. Then a quick look at the problem today of our malformed imagination, that monster under our bed. And then a few suggestions as to what we might want to do about it. Uh, the, a couple of times I'll refer to a handout if you have that on hand, great. If you don't, I'll be, I'll be reading from it in any case. Man the rational animal. Ladies and gentlemen, it's always nice to go back to savor again the astounding gift, the unique creation of God in making human nature the rational animal what an unending source for reflection that we are one and the same time rational, personal, spiritual beings. At the same time, we truly are animals. When Aristotle goes to define human nature, he puts it in the genus of animals. And it, isn't it clear? We clearly belong in the same broader kind as the other animals. I love it when, when St. Thomas or Aristotle refer to the other animals, reminding us that we too are animals. All of the higher animals live in and through their imagination. We do too, though with some big differences, because in us, imagination is taken up into the larger project. One thing that Aristotle points out when he's thinking about human nature, he says the power of reason is something divine in us. It's not a, a, a beautiful point. The power of reason is something divine in us. It's, it's otherworldly, as it were. It's our participation in something that so transcends what it means to be animal. Aristotle really wrestles with this. It's so, it's so amazing to see such a wise, humble, and docile man without the aid of divine revelation, just looking at what it means to be human, and at one and the same time recognizing that there is something utterly divine about us, and at the same time completely, in a sense, animal. And the incredible insight that really is at the root of understanding so much in human life is to see how our animality at the end of the day, while it can in various ways, you might say, get in the way or make a problem for us, at the same time, the truth of the matter is our very animality comes to its greatest fulfillment when it is taken up into our rationality. So at the heart of understanding what it means to be human is to recognize about ourselves that every aspect 
of our bodily, of our animal existence. This is one of the most dramatic things I'm gonna to say tonight, and really it, 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 it gives focus to everything. Every aspect of our bodily and animal existence has spiritual implications, has spiritual meaning. It has a place in the higher life to which God calls us. Animality is not something to be shed and left behind. It is something to be lived to its proper fullness, which is not an easy thing to do. And when we do, we look, while always somewhat the same as the other animals, we look oh so different. And animality itself comes to a perfection that we never would have perhaps imagined until we actually see it. So here we are at the intersection of the spiritual and the material realms. We exist at the point where all of material creation takes its meaning and its purpose. To understand what we've just said about human nature is to give so much deeper meaning to everything that goes on in the material cosmos. We walk among the animals and the plants and the mountains as cousin and as king. Again, our body in every single aspect of it is shot through with personal, with rational, with spiritual implications. Just a couple quick examples. Think of body language, posture, bowing, standing, kneeling, our hands what we do with our hands, our mouths, how we move our mouths, how we eat, how we speak. In all of these things, matter is taking on an astounding higher significance. It is no surprise then, ladies and gentlemen, that imagination, a power in the body, what we're calling imagination here, ladies and gentlemen, is a power that is an animal power. Right? The other higher animals have imaginations. Anyone spend much time around dogs? Have you ever seen a dog? A dog can have a bad dream, ladies and gentlemen. You ever seen a dog have a bad dream? There's, it is imagining things. There are scary things going on in that dog's imagination right now, right? When it's having that bad dream. Animals can imagine things, especially the higher ones, and they are extremely adept at it. So this is, this is an astounding similarity between us and them. So our imagination is going to have a role in our life like unto theirs, something as simple as, as, as Aristotle points out. Well, animals have to have imagination. How otherwise will a bear be able to look for fish, what would it be looking for if it can't imagine what it's looking for? Because when it sees it, it knows it has found what it was looking for. It imagined it before it found it. We, of course, do that too. 
but it's going to be no surprise that imagination is going to, at one and the same time, work for us in these kind of simple animal ways, but then also in much higher ways. Again, no surprise being that we live at that amazing juncture. <clears throat> what is imagination? A power that retains, recalls, and creatively arranges images from our five external senses. That's what I'm calling imagination. A power that retains, recalls, and can creatively arrange images from the five external senses. <clears throat> Again, what a joy. Imagine your grandmother right now. Isn't that a delight? There she is. That's, that's your imagination. You, we might say in common parlance, we see her, but you do not see your grandmother right now, but you can imagine her. Isn't that a nice gift, simply to be able to do that? Can you, can you picture, can you imagine the house that you grew up in? This is a way that we are present to things that are not present in body anymore. That's one of the most remarkable things right off the bat that we can do with our imagination. We can be present to things, people, they present to us in a sense, in a sense, by this amazing power of imagination. You can retain and recall very important words that have been said to you, a smile that was given to you, a kind gesture, not to mention, of course, also more traumatic things. We store these in our imagination and they can be recalled. This is the basis for our being able to grow in experience, right? If we weren't able to recall, to retain, and then recall what we have perceived with our senses, we wouldn't be able to learn through repeated experience as obviously we are able to. Quick side comment. I think one of the hardest things of losing a miscarried child was not to have a face to picture. But then again, you don't have to have a face to picture, do you? Because we know that one day images will give way to reality. It's not an amazing thing that, that, that in God's providence that, that there are people that no one has seen, as it were. But they have a face. They surely still have a face. We just don't have an image of it. But they have a face. Imagination can also picture things we need to think about, even if we haven't seen them. You can form new complex images from old ones. Children who live by the sea hear stories of great storms, even if they haven't seen those great storms. And when a great storm comes, they may well then know what to do, for their prudent parents have prepared them by giving them images, by teaching them to form images of things that they will experience. So that's that other thing that imagination can do. It can, it can 
form complex images from the things we have experienced of things that we haven't experienced. And that's a very important aspect of what it's going to do in the higher reaches. So what is the end? What is the main purpose? There's, there's, there's several of them. Let's just talk a little bit about that. The ultimate purpose of the imagination, ladies and gentlemen, in human persons is to serve the intellect and the will in the rational life of man. Imagination has a key and central role in serving our rational and personal life. Isn't it interesting? The power that is in a very important way, the same in kind between me and a dog can have a different fundamental purpose. While having the same role that it does in the dog, it also has this further role, this further role that draws up into it the lower role that I have in common with the dog. Everything that my imagination can do as in a bear or a dog takes on the further meaning of what my imagination can do in serving rational life. How does it serve rational life? The main way is by providing the necessary matter, the starting point for intellectual insight and consideration. The tradition uses the word abstraction here. The intellect abstracts from images that are in our imagination. We're not going to spend any more time on that, but just consider for a moment how you come to know what Aristotle would call the nature of tree. You can understand, you can understand, that's an act of your reason, an act of intellect, the nature of the tree, the nature of bird, the nature of man. Animals have sense images of these things, and they can retain those sense images, but they have no conception, they have no concept of what it means to be those kinds of things. We wouldn't either have any conception of what it means to be these different things if we weren't able to begin by sensing them, retaining those things in our imagination, and from that fertile content, being able to abstract into intellectual considerations. So again, imagination gives you the content, the basis from which we then move on to consider intellectual things. So from the richness, the quality of our images, arises the color and the nuance of our thinking, of our concepts and our judgments. Good teachers know that the key to helping their students understand the most abstract, the deepest of things, comes about by helping the student form imaginative images from which the student will be able to understand that point. You know who was one master of this? Socrates was. If you ever had occasion to look at the Republic at all, what are the most memorable things in the Republic? The images he used to convey the points that he wanted to make. Plato's cave, the story of the ship, and its captain, and the stargazer, who was the one who was really able to guide it, the divided line. All these things, Socrates, the consummate teacher, gave to us so that we could remember with those images, these simple realities from which you then come to abstract and grasp the higher ones. And of course, we don't need to point out the greatest teacher who ever walks the face of the earth. Consider for a moment, ladies and gentlemen, he 
bent, dare I say, most of his teaching energies towards forming the imagination of the people that were listening to him. He constantly gave images. It's like a boom. It's like a boom. Or picture that young man. How else would our Lord convey to human persons what he needed to convey than telling a story? And our intellect is able to go inside and take something out and recognize it doesn't matter whether I had gone off and was feeding pigs. It doesn't matter whether I am in these exact concrete circumstances. I can zing through, everyone in the room can zing through to the essential content. It's the same for all of us, but you wouldn't have gotten it had he not given you the image. Consider a person, ladies and gentlemen, who has images of a happy family life. When he hears someone speak of natural law regarding the nature of family and sexuality, where will his thoughts tend if the images that he has of family life are of a, let's just say, happy, healthy family? Then when it comes to reasoning about, is there a right or wrong about these things? Is there, are there specific things we can say about the nature of family or not? Need it be one man and one woman? If the stock of images one has of these things is, let's just say, over there somewhere, ladies and gentlemen, it is no surprise when a person is, is utterly baffled when you come along and say, well, of course, family has to look like this, look like this. For those for whom it has not looked like this, what, pray tell me, are you talking about? Where our imagination is, ladies and gentlemen, there our thoughts are. This is a simple truth, and it's an amazing one. If you're imagining something, you are not thinking about something else. You are thinking about what you are imagining. You can see sometimes in the classroom, if someone's eyes are kind of glazed over, right? And, and, and you can see I, you know, I, I, where, who will ever know, this person actually is right now. But the one thing is, this person is not here, right? <laughs> I, I'm talking about this. And this person is thinking about that. And this and that are not the same thing. Whatever we're imagining, that's what we're thinking about. That's what we're present to. I have a, a little quotation for you at the top of your quotation page. This priest we're going to return to because the reason I have him on the handout is because of his incredible, what he has to say about prayer. And that's where I'm going to end. But here, he just I put this first because he says, we are in a real sense present where that object is which occupies our imagination. 
more truly present where it is than where we may happen to be locally. Again, the power of imagination. Sum up. By our imagination, we should live in the presence and the remembrance of the people, the things, the realities that we should. Our imagination significantly determines both to what we are present in our consciousness and how we think about those things. Again, I say to you, our imagination significantly determines both to what we are present in our consciousness, in our thoughts, and how we think about those things. One more quick thing about how imagination works. It moves the sense appetite. It moves our appetites. This is, this is simply part of the beautiful design of animals. You can imagine breakfast and all of a sudden become hungry. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very remarkable thing, right? If I start to talk to you right now about acorn-fattened pigs and the bacon that comes from it, you could literally start to have a bodily passion, right? Right. This is this is this is true. This is the this is this is, this is the pleasant part of this. But ladies and gentlemen, what's in our imagination moves our desires. It, it makes a very big difference what is in our imagination and what is not in our imagination. How is imagination formed? I can make a quick distinction. I'm going to make a distinction between content and process. Distinction between content and process. I mean, in a word, we can simply talk about what stock of images are in the imagination or not. And that's very important. I'm going to speak briefly about that. And, and then we can talk about the processes of our imagination and how we are at doing them. The main example I would give to that is kind of how we are able to piece together the more complex images we need in order to think about the most important of things. And in general, we have to be able to make those complex phantasms images in our imagination from things we've experienced, we have to be able to piece them together in a certain kind of a way. Our imagination needs to be an active power there. And our imagination can be better at that or not. So in talking about how it's formed, it's one thing to talk about where the content comes from. It's another thing that, to talk about how we use our imagination being formed. So a couple quick thoughts on how it is formed. Bottom line, it's formed by how we live, the things to which we are exposed, the things to which we expose ourselves, the things that we think about, which in general always begins by an imagining about them anyway. Consider we are basically, ladies and gentlemen, always imagining something. Here, here's, a, here's a fascinating thing. You can only touch and go on this. Think about that amazing thing that human consciousness is. It's fascinating to think about the difference between the consciousness of a human being and the consciousness of a dog. Think about the number. There's a number of things that blend together seamlessly. So be philosophical with me for a moment. You're, consider. 
we have, we have our live sense input that's coming from what we call our exterior senses, imagination, the tradition calls an interior sense. We have the data that's coming in from the exterior senses right now. We have what's going on in our imagination, which is concomitant. It's going on at the same time. And then we have our reason kind of overseeing, and this is an all together, we are conscious with all of this together. Consider how from experience, you've seen before how your imagination is constantly filling in. You ever had this happen to you? You're, you're standing in church and there's someone in front of you. And from the back, the person in front of you looks exactly like somebody that you know. And so you're quite sure who that person is. And indeed, what, you, what happens then is your imagination literally fills in what's on the other side of the back of the head that you're looking at, right? Then it comes to the kiss of peace that, and the person turns around and you go, ah! <laughs> You've done that before, haven't you? Admit it. Hasn't this happened, happened to you? You, you, you literally, you, you have to catch yourself, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> right, now, why, why, did, why did you kind of scream? It's because, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, this is also part of the reason it's, it's, it's good to know this. Sometimes people will swear that they saw something that they didn't. They thought they saw it because their imagination filled it in. In this very case, I might well have told somebody that I saw Jane at church. Called upon, I might even have testified in court that I saw Jane in church. But I didn't see Jane in church. It's not that I'm lying. All right, so our imagination fills lots of things in. By the way, if you, like me, like to bound up steps, your imagination is doing a lot of filling in. You can consider that. You can you get good at it. You can run up steps with your eyes closed. How in the world is that going on? You're completely using your imagination. You don't try that with steps that you haven't you know, gone up before. Well, of course, this is also why building codes require that steps be a certain amount because we all just, our bodies are used to that. That's what you're expecting. And so if, if a step's off, off, we're just gonna kill somebody. All right, so we have, we have this complex consciousness that has this all going on at the same time. We're always using our imagination. First of all, it's just a reminder again of, of how critical it is because it's always in certain ways, it's, it's, it's the bigger constant than what we're seeing with our external senses right now. So it's constantly being formed in and through our experience. Quick side point, how is it formed? Education, the wise have always known, absolutely central to real education, meaning formation of the whole human person is essentially, not reduced to, but necessarily has a focus on forming the imagination of the person, forming good content in ways that we're gonna talk about in a moment, and forming good processes about which we can talk about how to, how to do that here in a moment. So, current situation, our problem. Bearing in mind the distinction between content and process, let's just think really quickly here about the problem that we find ourselves in here. I'm going to keep it brief as regards the bad content. There is, of course, a lot of content that's being constantly presented to our imagination that's simply evil. But I'm not going to focus on those things that we unfortunately see 
that we shouldn't be seeing and thus shouldn't be imagining. I'm going to focus for a moment on that host of images that are rather just ugly or banal or trivializing. I think there's a lot especially of trivializing images. The wrong images can make even the most noble and important realities appear other than they are. Consider the images, ladies and gentlemen, that people have of fatherhood. Fatherhood. The, the image that perhaps best captures the reality is the one that we started this evening with. That's, that's an image that captures the reality of what it means to be a father. Consider the, the host of bad images. I'll, I'll show my age and say you know, Archie Bunker. I mean, goodness knows the images in, you know, in the television in the meantime. Uh, but the trivial, the, 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 again, when I say ugly, these aren't necessarily evil, but they're the ones that form how we think about these things. Images of marriage, of family, of courage, of temperance, of chastity, of friendship. Do we even have images of these things in their positive senses? Or is the host of images that's being presented to us make it almost impossible to conceptualize those realities for what they are? A couple thoughts on process. Overload. Overload. We need to have a certain peace and silence. I'm not going to be able to defend this as much as I'd like to. We need to function well. This is part of re recognizing in humility how we work as the rational animals we are. Overload. We need a certain peace and silence, a space to savor good and rich images. But all of us, to varying degrees, are suffering from a terrible case of imagination overload. We have limited attention ability, ladies and gentlemen, as rational animals. We need to have the space to be able to focus on a limited number of images. But what do we served up instead? A constant barrage that barely ever leaves us the peace to be able to settle into savoring the images that we have. This is an overload. Remember the principle. Our imagination significantly determines both to what we are present in our consciousness and how we think about those things. Human life is lived in presence and in memory. So overload and the consequent inability or challenge we have in going deep and being able to savor and start to be contemplative, ladies and gentlemen, our very humanity is being threatened. Again, the ability to savor rich images in a somewhat peaceful and silent, not in any case overly frenetic context, this is where we are able to exercise rationality alone and with others. 
overload of imagination threatens that at its root. Interesting note, Mass today, the priest's homily, he mentioned the following. He said, many today are not even really in conversation with themselves or present themselves. He started out by saying, well, you know how in general, we, we have kind of a constant interior conversation going on. We have conversation with, these, with ourselves. But he said, I think more and more, he said, especially the young people, they're barely even in conversation with themselves, but rather they're normally staring out into the void of a screen. And so they're not even in conversation and presence to themselves, let alone other people around them. And he, without joking, he said, that's what I would call zombie apocalypse. So when, when, when you see a whole generation of people whose attention and thus imagination is absorbed in a screen, I know that's lying fruit and kind of an easy thing to hit, but it's important that we do remember that. We replace an active, healthy imagination, which allows for proper presence and self-possession with an overcrowded, overstimulated imagination with banal, shallow images. I don't know about you, but I, I, I saw a movie in the, in, in the theater recently. I, I find the previews absolutely stunning, just, just jaw-dropping. The, the, the series of images so fast, so furious, not necessarily some of them bad, not necessarily bad, just, just, just overwhelming. And then, and then banal, then stupid, then offensive, then... But, but, but this, is, this is the stuff that our imaginations are constantly exposed to. Passive, passivity, ladies and gentlemen, still on the, on the, on the topic of, of the uh, processes. Passivity, inactivity. Think again of the commercials of today. It's like, those, like their previews. They tell us a lot. Remember, they're the fruit of our best science. Now industry has to use amazing new technologies and tricks, as it were, to try to grab our attention. This is a sure sign that we are becoming more passive, that we are much less able to notice and receive things that those trying to get our attention have to be all the more, as it were, offensive, offensive and obnoxious and in our face. Let's go to thinking of solutions, ladies and gentlemen. Three quick parts. Negative, <clears throat> some things to avoid, some things as it were not to do. And then on the positive side, let's talk briefly about seeking good content and then working on good processes. And then we're done. Avoiding certain things. Would you look at uh, the second quotation, if you would, on the handout from Joseph Pieper? This is a great little article. The amazing thing about this article is that it was written in 1952. I'm going to read it to you. The problem of visual noise. There does exist something like visual noise, which just like the acoustical counterpart makes clear perception impossible. One might perhaps presume the TV watchers, tabloid readers, and moviegoers exercise and sharpen their eyes, but the opposite is true. 
The ancient sages knew exactly why they called the concupiscence of the eyes a destroyer. The restoration of man's intact eyes can hardly be expected in this day and age unless, first of all, one were willing and determined simply to exclude from one's realm of life all those inane and contrived but titillating illusions incessantly generated by the entertainment industry. I'm not exactly sure what he was referring to in 1952. <laughs> I, I wasn't around at the time. In, in any case, I, I dare say, we, the entertainment industry has certainly given them something to talk about now. Ladies and gentlemen, it's easier for me to stand up here and thump on the podium about, all right, we have to be determined to exclude all these inane and contrived but titillating illusions incessantly generated by the entertainment industry. Maybe that's asking too much. Maybe. But ladies and gentlemen, this is your challenge. What can you reasonably exclude? What are you willing to kind of step up and say, I've got to carve out a space, again, we're gonna to go to process in a moment, for just to reduce the overcrowding and so forth. But this right here, just, I, I bring this up on just the level of the content, the kind of images that we have. There's a whole set of places, not just entertainment, maybe other things that we would read or listen to. For us to have a sense of the old-fashioned guarding the eyes, guarding the ears, guarding all of our senses. If it goes in our exterior senses, it goes in the imagination, period. The imagination is designed to hold everything, and it holds on tight because it's well-designed. So it certainly gives us something to think about as regards what are we going to exclude. I sincerely consider, pardon me, suggest, consider making specific resolutions consider making specific resolutions about how to exclude content generating things in our life. Now let's go to seeking positive images and then after that process. Just to throw out a few. These are things you know. I'm just gonna stand up here in view of everything that we've said and just encourage you to do it. Tell stories. One thing to recognize as someone in the studies all show this about children, note the huge difference. It's one thing for a child to watch a screen, to watch television and have images imprinted upon the imagination. It's another thing for the child to listen and the child's imagination or the adult's imagination is constantly forming images according to what was heard. I'm getting ahead of myself because that, that was going to be my point under process. But just right now, telling, telling good stories. I can't tell you how happy I am to have some of the, the, the images I have of, 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 of several generations ago and the things that they've shared. These are rich images. These are images that teach a lot about life. And I dare say a lot of our young people don't have these images. If you're an older person in the room, do, do, your, do your offspring and the, your offspring's offspring, do they have images in their imagination so that they can understand your life and the incredible things of your experience and your culture and your background. It's life forming, it's life changing. And if it's not in their imagination, then they don't know it. Reading aloud, 
good books. Nature, I've had other lectures on, on this, but just, just pause for a moment. God has given us the ultimate natural source of, of life-giving, life-forming, life-directing images to be experienced live in the natural world around us. Great art and great architecture. My wife, as regards our next, my, my sabbatical, I'm blessed to have a sabbatical every seven years. We've never traveled with the children overseas and, and with the several children that are still at home, we've decided we're gonna do what we can to make this work out. We're gonna take the children to Italy for two months of our sabbatical. And my wife said to me, I just want our children to have seen architecture that looks like that. And I just thought, of course, <laughs> of course. That's so true. It's so true. How about cultivating process? Once again, right, listening to the stories and repeating them. There's the studies show that, by the way, if you've told a, a, a child a story, particularly if then you have the child tell the story back, it's astounding how it develops their imagination and their ability to conceptualize the things that are in it. Our imagination is designed to be active, to imagine what is heard by the ears. Picture that group of people listening spellbound to a story. This is human life happening in an extremely concentrated way. And as gentlemen, it's, 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 it seems kind of silly for me to be standing up here making, making a big whoop to do, but you tell me. Do you see that going on out there? I don't see it very much. And so we need to make some choices. And in tonight I'm saying, in the name of imagination, we need to be having regular story times, reading aloud times, among adults too. Take up the, uh, the hobby, the practice of bird watching of tree identification. Look for the differences of the, in the beauty of natural kinds. I am absolutely convinced that when God designed the natural kinds, and remember, sorry to just take this as a side swipe, whatever exactly is the truth of evolution or not, this much we know philosophically and theologically. The set of species with the specific characteristics that they have are a matter of divine intention. The tradition would say they were per se. They were not per accidens. They didn't come about by accidental interactions. If they came about through many interactions, it was overseen by an intelligence that wanted kinds of this kind. When we come upon the various animal kinds and tree kinds, I'm not making a scientific assertion, ladies and gentlemen, I'm making a philosophical one. They have meaning, those kinds, that they are that way. And they are worthy of our observation and they are wonder evoking. I'm just making a side point there because honestly, in over biological evolutionary view, can be perverting of imagination because it removes from our imagining of these kinds a great intrinsic worth and beauty to them that was not simply about their survival. It was a matter of design, something that's worth 
worthy of contemplation. And so for us to make an effort to try to appreciate them is a key way of developing the whole contemplative spirit. Art appreciation, seek it out, savor it, study it. Quick quotation from the handout from John Paul II. I'm on the backside, the, the smallest quotation, a little over halfway down from his letter to artists. Church art, he was actually talking about in, in the Middle Ages, church art molded matter in a way which led to adoration of the mystery. It's not a great line. Church art molded matter in a way which led to adoration of the mystery. Ladies and gentlemen, church art can't lead to adoration of the mystery unless it's in our imagination. That's where that great art belongs. Here's another quick suggestion. Periods where we can use our imagination, quiet times, alone times, you know how they say it's very important for children to have alone play times, un uninterrupted? If you have young children, make sure that you're, you're doing that for them. But let's set that aside for a moment. Us, we need to have alone times, play times, where, where it's kind of uninterrupted, where we learn how to be and practice being just present and using our imagination. May I make this, may su this suggestion? Rather than when we're in the airport, rather than taking out a device, Take it, take it as an opportunity to go inside your imagination. While everybody else is doing that, just, just go inside and practice being with yourself in your imagination. It will be an imaginative exercise. It will build the imagination and it will build us, allowing us to be present to the things that we, that we most love. Maybe you go to your family. Maybe you build a plate, your favorite place to go to. Maybe you go to Bethany and Lazarus and Martha and Mary are there. Find your own favorite place in your imagination and inhabit it. When you stop at a light, don't be tempted to take out devices. When you're stopped wherever, you're on, you're on the bus. Inhabit in silence those areas. This is not escapism because to live in a well-formed imagination, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't take you away from reality. It brings you to reality. To live in a well-formed imagination does not take you away from reality. It takes you to the heart of reality. Memory work, work on your poems, Work on your poems with your children. I was going to rec recite for you one of my favorites, Robert Louis Stevenson, A Good Boy. I recite every night with my seven-year-old, but I don't, don't have time to do it. It would have brought tears to my eyes anyway, and we got to wrap up. And I want to have my final points to you, but Robert Louis Stevenson, they're, 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 they're so powerful. They're, they so are alive with the good life. It, it, it's such a way to form their imagination. And the studies show the rhythm of poetry, develop certain patterns of seeing reality better. These things all work together. My final point, ladies and gentlemen, is that imagination, in using it well, is the most straightforward, natural thing we can do to enhance our prayer life. And I just give you this quotation from Father Lean in his progress through mental prayer. Before I do it, I'm not going to read the quotation to you from St. Thomas Aquinas on devotion. I'm just going to tell you what it says. He says, 
given man's mode of knowing through his imagination. God in his generosity saw that taking on flesh and living among us in a way that we could picture and imagine would give us that key angle to be able to understand him. And in his generosity, then, he shares that with us to form the imagination of our whole life. And so I'm at the bottom of page one really quickly. God is pure spirit. This is Father Lean. And we are not. We cannot come into his presence as an angel can. All the acts of our intellects depend on the senses and on the imagination. We must have some imaginative image of a thing in order to be able to think on it. It's difficult for us to form an image of the divinity and therefore difficult for us to be present with God. At least it would be very difficult for us had not God in his kindness found a way by which access to him by aid of the imagination might be made easy for men. This way was the incarnation. Isn't that amazing? Next quotation. Therefore, the ordinary way of mental prayer. Here's a master of the prayer life. This is from his book called Progress Through Mental Prayer. The ordinary way of mental prayer or meditation is the reviewing in our imagination and in our intelligence, the life and the words of Jesus. Next one, we become present with God by having present in thoughts, affection, and imagination the life of Jesus. We associate with and converse with God by associating and conversing in spirit with Jesus. So, ladies and gentlemen, I conclude. Isn't it an astoundingly exciting idea that our Lord has given us this gift of sacred scripture, especially the gospels, that have images of every conceivable kind that will match up with anything in our life, particularly if we, if we move among the natural world. Everything in the natural world has in some way been associated by Jesus with his teaching. And so to enter into an interior life with him, What's always in our power to do? To go to Scripture in our imagination. Whether we have Scripture right there before us, or whether we've committed it, these incredibly powerful words, these life-changing words, his words are always seeds. The seeds are to be planted in our imagination. Where else will God's words ever grow? except by being planted and retained in our imagination. I conclude with my favorite line from a Byzantine post-communion prayer that just appeals to your imagination of that beautiful experience that we hope that we've had in common at some point in our life that allows us to turn towards the heavenly things. Thus, when I depart from this life, in the hope of life eternal, may I attain that everlasting rest where the sounds of those celebrating never ceases and where there's no end to the delights of those who behold the ineffable beauty of your face. Thanks for your attention. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutterback. Thank you. How would you address the need of our memory uh, for our imagination, using the bear uh, example, who may never have seen a fish before. 
and he wants to, he imagines this fish, but if he never saw a fish, how, right. how can he imagine it? Okay, um, very good question. I think a bear who has never seen a fish can't look for a fish, um, but he can look for something to eat. I mean, so it's, so let's, real quick, let's go. Um, I, I've, I've watched newborn piglets, right? There's, there's, so there's this, um, uh, they naturally start to, they start to look for the, for the mother's teeth. I, I think it's fair to say they don't really know what they're looking for. I don't think they particularly can imagine. I think at that point, I mean, nature has so many amazing aspects. The instincts just kind of start to, 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 to move towards, you know, that which is warm and so forth. But once they, once they have started to taste certain things, then boom, all those things can then be retained and remembered. So I, I, I think it's fair to say there's not something in their imagination that hasn't been, they can't imagine or remember. And I, I should have clarified at one point, much of what we call remembering is part of what we're here calling imagining. In other words, basically remembering, retaining images. When I defined the imagination, it was retaining of images. So I mean, I think a, a, a first-year cub, how does it, it, it first sees a fish when it sees its, mo its mother, father catch a fish? Right? Now it knows what a fish looks like. I don't think it, would, it wouldn't have known what a fish, and, and this is the thing. The, I mean, a, you know, a, a, a really young cub, it's probably not going to make it. It's not going to find fish on its own, maybe unless it gets lucky. So it, it, it's not in our imagination unless we already have sensed it. I am using the term here, imagination, really as the power that does recall. And so you remember, like right now if I say, do you remember what, what your grandmother looks like? Your imaginative power holds that and you can go back to that. It does need to be put in there. And so newborn animals, newborn humans need to start to experience things, right? But the, as soon as they're experiencing them, it's being retained. I don't, there's nothing in there before they've experienced anything. In any case, that's what Aristotle would say. And I, I think that corresponds to experience. So I'm sorry if I'm not quite seeing what you're going after. Uh, we have internal senses and, and one of them is memory. And I'm saying that memory, you need that memory first before you can have an imagination. Okay, well, we, we can talk about that afterwards. I, I don't think that, that's not how St. Thomas would put it. That's not, the, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit complicated. They work together, but I wouldn't say the memory is there before the imagination. I'd say what the memorative is doing something very similar to the imaginative. Here, I, I've simplified a little bit. I'm not bringing in another power that's closely related because it can confuse things. But I wouldn't have put the memory before imagination. So sorry, we can talk a little bit more afterwards. Yes. We've got another question coming in from Audrey, who's writing in online. Uh, she's wondering if you have advice on how to uh, effectively remove images that we wouldn't want in our mind. So she particularly is, uh, is asking about bad memories. Um, I, I, great question. I, say, I think um, experience shows the main way is by powerful new ones. As it were, it's, 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 it's pushing out the bad by also, by also drying them up by starving them. Remember, a way to reinforce an image is to, is to hold on to it. This is, this is an important thing. There's, there's so many things here. If we're angry at somebody, one of the most important things is don't picture the person. As soon as an image of that person comes into your imagination, 
try to close it right back out because it tends to raise the passions that you have simply by seeing that person's face. You know, the, the, that high octane ping of when you're just see, seeing certain, certain people. So you gotta, we try to cut out those imaginations. So there is a saying no, try not to reinforce them in any way, but then I'd say that, that that's hard. You can only do so much, but, but cultivating the new, particularly rich ones, ones that we keep repeating, and of course, prayer, using scripture, scripture, the words of scripture can squeeze out the bad. Please. If our imagination is just rearranging the memories that our senses have been put, what is it when we construct something that is not something that's the result of a, a memory? Tell me what you, do you have an example of what you're thinking of? I'm just kind of thinking of fantasy stories in, in science fiction literature where yep. there's no basis for a lot of the things that were told in those stories. Well, I, 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 I think you can say there is, well, see, seeing what you're saying, there is a basis. Every single thing in there is rooted in something that we have sensed. It's just being rearranged. And so, I mean, I, I think if we, if we got down in the nitty gritty, I think we'd find it's even the, you know, there, there's no such thing as a, as, as, as a lightsaber, but we can picture the light, we can picture a sword, and then you remove the metal and you put in the light. And so now you've got a lightsaber. You press this button and this happens. I mean, we, we, we put, I mean, however strange it is, if you're imagining it, it's rooted in something that you have seen or heard, I think. We can keep thinking about that. Yep. Uh, there's another question that's coming in online um, from uh, someone who is a writer or a storyteller. And this is April who's writing in and is asking, what are things we can put in our work that helps build the good imagination of our readers and give them good images to have? Well, that's, I, I, first of all, I just I affirm the question. I mean, what, what a great thing to be, uh, that's the right question to be asking. And of course, I, I don't want to reduce it down to, well, just have always just nice, sweet stories about wonderful things happening. I mean, it's, it's, not, that, it's not that simple. There's a, lot, there's a lot that goes into that as regards you know, the art of, of, of storytelling is I'd say it's, it's images that ultimately are always trying to bring out some facet of reality as it is as opposed to, if we always have that in mind, as opposed to what so many storytellers are doing now, just looking to tell a story in such a way that it's to get people's attention, grab their interest, get them to buy a book. I mean, remember the end, the end goal, to give some insight into reality. This all art ultimately is about giving us some further insight into reality as it is. And so I know that still leaves open the question, how do we judge images by which ones do that or not? Great question. That takes a lot of work. But in any case, we have the right question there. How can we, how can we be forming images and stories that are gonna help show reality for what it is, as opposed to being something that was more just titillating, something that, I mean, when you have images that make bad, appear good. This is a distorting of reality. I, 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 I think we can't emphasize that enough. Images that make what is in reality good appear bad 
is distorting the way things are. So the, there's a real art of being able to form images in stories that are, that are fictional. Tolkien has a beautiful uh, um, uh, essay, by the way, on the importance of fairy stories and how, and one of the things that Tolkien says, just to quickly go back to the other question, is, is how there's certain truths that always should be maintained. Even in an alternate reality, there's certain truths that are key to reality as it is that you would never change in a fairy story. And Tolkien would say, if you change those things, for instance, that a free agent is responsible for what he does. If you, if you tell a story that's supposedly an alternate reality, where here you have a free agent who's not responsible for what he does. This is deeply distorting of reality. For a free agent is always and intrinsically responsible for what he does. And to tell a story wherein that's not the case is to distort reality. So in any case, just a quick thought. What we'll end, this, end with this question from Daniel. Do you think there's any proper usage of things like television or devices that can actually cultivate the imagination or is it always going to be a net harm or neutral? Great, great, great question. There ha yes, there absolutely are uh, um, ways of using these modern technologies and, and I hope, I, I, I'm trying to remember how much I addressed that in the technology and ICC technology lecture that I've given. Um, I like to say there are, we need at times to use technology to overcome some of the very problems that the technology itself has caused. Here's, I think, is, 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 is one example. Um, great music. I wish I had said this in the lecture, and, and, and I didn't. The, the tradition always emphasized great music as being a way of forming the soul, and music you retain in your imagination. Now, gentlemen, to some extent, what, what, what do we start humming when we're humming? I, I dare say everyone has a little bit of a kind of a, um, theme song for your life, right? I mean, kind of what, you know, what, what, what music tends to, would we tend to start to hum just as, as we're moving about our way? This makes a very big difference. There is good soul-forming music that, for instance, right now, probably the main way you're going to be able to get in touch with it is downloading it and blah, 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 right? So, so great, great music. It's just, that's just one little teeny example. Yes, so let's be savvy, but always, but, uh, always bearing in mind, again, now we haven't been able to go into the details of the dangers, but we have yet another reason to be savvy and careful about those technologies because imagination is a powerful and fragile reality that needs cultivation and protection, and no one's gonna do it for us. Thanks for that question. Thank you very much, Dr. Patrick mm. Ketterback. We appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.